1: Uh, yesterday I was walking on the Upper West Side, and I was attacked by a squirrel.
0: <laughs> I gotta say, oh my from, God! From, from the tone of your voice, it sounds like you did not win that battle. <laughs> no, no.
1: I, I want to be like you should see the other guy, but the other guy is a squirrel, and the squirrel looks just fine.
0: <laughs> okay, details. What what happened? What how you know? Was it like an aerial attack? Was it? Were you were you were you were you walking? Were you did you have a bunch of? Were you walking like a bag of nuts when you should know better in Upper West Side? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, not, not
0: to blame the victim here, but
1: yeah, wow. Um, th- I, I it happened so fast, so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what happened. It was all a blur of like uh, bushy tail. Um, but no, I was I was texting my mom and walking. So I guess you know, I shouldn't be texting and walking in, in the in, through the mean streets of the Upper West Side. But uh, I just felt this like weight on my on my knee. And uh, I, I was just like I felt a tiny like scratch, and then I looked down, and this very pugnacious squirrel was like had grabbed onto my leg, and I like pushed it off. I mean, I guess I startled it. It had jumped out of a bush onto me. Maybe I'm like self-victim blaming, but um, (laughs) oh my
2: god!
1: Let this be a warning. Do you need a rabies shot? Yeah. Uh, I it didn't break the skin, and I I feel I feel okay today. <laughs> oh. But as if I start to sound more erratic throughout the recording, maybe. Yeah, by the um, end of
2: it, Tyler's foaming
1: at the mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's a- not a- just about Buzzfeed. A- avo- avoiding water. Do you, Do you think when Do you think when Republican politicians talk about how New York is a demonic hell space,
1: they're referring <laughs> That's what to what they the have in mind? Squ- yeah. squir- squirrel attacks. Yeah, this is the future. Liberal want liberals want. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and I'm here with one of my co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And not with my other co-host and usual fearless leader, Scott Anderson, who is taking a well-deserved vacation. I think this is his first missing of Rational Security in basically two years. I think he's done like a hundred of these in a row. So Scott, wherever you are, uh, enjoy your rest and um, I hope you realize that uh, you, too, are replaceable. In this case, by the inestimable Tyler <laughs> McBrien, Lawfare's managing editor and increasingly rational security frequent flyer. We are delighted to have you
1: back on the show, Tyler. Hello. How was that <laughs> Scott Anderson impression? That was really good.
2: Yeah, good. no, I'm impressed.
0: Qu- Quinta, it's your, your turn. What's, what, what's yours? Do your best.
2: I don't know. Something about the Muppets? Let me tell you all about my specialty cocktail. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that's it. Scott, don't
0: bother coming back. <laughs> you, ha- you have been replaced. International law. <laughs> <laughs> treaties, treaties, treaties. And then you have to smack the microphone a little bit with your hands. <laughs> uh, well, well uh, d- despite the absence of our fearless leader, we are very excited uh, to bring you today's episode, which we are calling the... You hear that, Mister Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. Goodbye, Mister Anderson. Edition. <laughs> Alan really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. It's one of my. I gotta say, uh, the Matrix is is one of those uh, list of what I think of as perfect movies. Not obviously like the best movies in the world, but for what they are, like you know, the Matrix. Independence Day, Top Gun, Maverick. They're like perfect movies, and I really like that movie. Well, so we are very excited to talk to you because we have some interesting topics today. Uh, So first, but I thought 42 was the answer to life, the universe, and everything. On Thursday, the Biden administration will cease Title 42, the policy linked to the COVID public health emergency under which asylum seekers could be turned back at the border. In its place, the administration is implementing a new rule that harshly restricts asylum, essentially accepting as the new normal limitations on asylum that, for the Trump administration, implemented Title 42 would have been unthinkable. What should we make of the Biden administration's embrace of draconian immigration restrictions? Topic two, every time a tragedy, increasingly also a farce. Over the weekend, a gunman opened fire at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, killing at least eight and injuring seven Uh, before dying at the hands of police. Tragically, this wasn't even the deadliest mass shooting on record this year, and we're only at May. How did mass shootings become America's pastime, and what can be done to stop them? And topic three, BuzzFeed, more like buzzkill. Late last month, BuzzFeed News announced that it was shutting down the news site always courted controversy, never more so than when, in 2017, it published the unverified and infamous Steele dossier, alleging that Russia had compromising information on newly elected President Donald Trump. But the site also had notable successes, earning a George Polk Award and a Pulitzer Prize. What does BuzzFeed News's end signal about the future of journalism? And I would just like to say, I am no pun wizard like Scott R. Anderson, but I'm not going to lie, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good. I think
2: you did a nice job.
0: Thank thank you. Really appreciate that. Okay, for topic one, let me turn it over to you, Quinta.
2: So on Thursday, when when you are listening to this, dear listener, the Biden administration uh, will end the public health emergency uh, associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, which will legally, under a variety of court restrictions, finally give it the authority to close, bring an end to the Title 42 policy. Uh, Title 42 being the name of the statute um, that gives the administration, this authority to essentially allow the U.S. government to expel people who cross the border uh, without giving them a chance to seek asylum. Uh, The policy is pretty striking as a departure from the past asylum regime. The U.S. did not previously have this policy. You know, Asylum seekers, immigration law is, uh, was once described to me uh, by as fractally complex. Um, so I'm not going to attempt to go into the details here. But essentially, before Title 42, if you're an asylum seeker uh, and cross the border from Mexico into the United States, you would be allowed to remain in the country and seek asylum. Under Title 42, the government was empowered to just start turning people back. What's interesting and really troubling, I think, about this development is that since Title 42 was first implemented by the Trump administration nominally as a public health measure, and we can talk about that, It's kind of become the new baseline for immigration policy uh, among both parties, Um, and I think we now see how the Biden administration is embracing that as well. Um, So as I mentioned, the administration uh, had continued Title 42. It was blocked in its attempt to end it by a variety of court orders, but in the absence of Title 42, it will be implementing a new rule that really harshly restricts the ability of asylum seekers to, to acquire asylum um, in, in a way that I know I've seen some analysts suggest is actually more restrictive in some ways than Title 42. So the question that this really raises for me is, you know, is this just Stephen Miller's world and we're all just living in it? By which I mean that, you know, President Biden positioned himself as, you know, rejecting Trump era policies. He said, I believe, during a a presidential debate in 2020 that he wanted a return to um, usual asylum standards. But what we've seen increasingly, it feels like to me, is that, you know, Trump has set the terms of debate. On immigration policy in this country, and the Biden administration seems to be embracing them, you know, pre Trump administration adopting this unbelievably restrictive uh, asylum policy would have, I, I would think, uh, led to, you know, cries of outrage among the Democratic Party. And you don't see any of that at all. In fact, we saw multiple Democratic senators, um, including uh, Senator John Tester of Montana and no longer Democrat Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, lobbying in the Senate for uh, extension of Title 42 earlier. Um, so what do you both make of this? I mean, have we entered a, a brave new world where the U.S. essentially doesn't allow asylum seekers to enter the country? Alan, uh, let me turn to you first.
0: Yeah, so i I, th- I think it's I think it's a little complicated, and and I do think it's worth digging in a little bit to the details, despite your warning about the fractal complexity of immigration law, which which really is it's 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 kind of mind blowingly complicated. Because I I I think that while your framing is certainly one perfectly legitimate way of framing it, I don't think it's the only one. So so you know, obviously, the end of Title forty two, which allowed the government to expel people, basically. In five minutes, when they come to the border, does in some fundamental way, even if you lard a bunch of additional restrictions onto asylum seeking, make it in some ways easier to apply for asylum? Because at the very least, right now the government is operating under a different regime. It has to consider your asylum claim more seriously. And there are actually quite a number of categories by which people will still be able to enter the United States while their asylum claim is being processed, right? So if you're coming with unaccompanied children, um, if you can show sort of credible that you're fleeing from like imminent violence, also depending on some countries that you're from. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I think to be perfectly honest, we just, we don't know exactly how it'll shake out in terms of the net effect on whether it's going to be easier or harder to apply for asylum. I think for some people, it will be easier. For some people, it will be harder. It also depends on the short-term versus long-term. So one one kind of interesting feature of Title 42 is that if you're expelled uh, or turned away at the border under Title 42, that actually doesn't count as a deportation under immigration law, which means that you have not done anything wrong. So you can just try again and again and again and again. And in fact, under Title 42, plenty of people were let into the country. Where, whereas under the normal asylum system, if you're turned away, you know, or deported. That's like a deportation. And if you try to come back again after that, or, or you cross the border and again, I'm, I'm not getting any of these details right. So, all the immigration lawyers who are listening, please um, feel free to screw me in, in the in the in the Twitter comments. But sort of generally, the idea is that you know, if you're deported under the regular asylum system, and you try to cross back, that is itself a crime, uh, and so that then makes it harder to apply again. And and we just ultimately don't know exactly how like all of this will 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 net out. So I, I do want to kind of push back maybe just a little bit on the idea that like, this is basically just Stephen Miller and, and Trump sort of continuing.
2: Yeah, can I say can I say one thing just as a clarification point? So my understanding, um, and again, giant caveats. Um,
0: we're, we're, we're all so scared of immigration law. It's really pretty funny. God, it's
2: it, I have so much respect for people who work in this yeah. area. Um, my understanding is that the new regulation is in some ways a kind of return to the harsher punishments for crossing the border. Um, that were pre-Title 42 and that it disqualifies non-Mexican migrants from asylum if they enter the U.S. without permission, um, and that they are subject to deportations to their home country or Mexico and potential criminal prosecution if they try to re-enter. So there is, you know, it's, it's kind of combining uh, elements of,
0: of both of those policies. Yeah, no, totally. Now that aside, it, it is certainly true. And I could, you're absolutely right that like whatever the net result is, it's not a particularly liberal asylum policy. And so the question is like, what do we make of that? And so look, I should say that my substantive views on this, I'm, I am pretty far out. I'm like a pretty far out open borders kind of person. Uh, Maybe not like totally open borders, but like, I'm, I'm pretty close to that. You know, part of it is what I think on the merits. I'm a big believer in like the Matt Iglesias, one billion Americans kind of model. You know, my parents were Soviet refugees, so it's kind of personal for me. So like my own personal views are actually pretty to the, I don't even know if you call it to the left exactly, uh, because there are plenty of libertarians who agree with me, but whatever, onto the open border side of this. But be that as it may, that's not where most Americans are. So thinking through the kind of politics about this, because we do ultimately live in a democracy, and democracies get to pick their border policies. I, th- I think a couple of things are, are happening. You know, first, I think that, you know, one part of Trump's genius, and I use the word genius kind of, you know, a, 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 he, he he was in many ways a genius, even if not a very stable one, um, was that he understood that a lot of the shibboleths of the, you know, Bush era Republican Party were just not believed by the base, right? Like the base doesn't care about tax cuts, they don't want to privatize Social Security, and they don't want immigration reform. and they, and, you know, the Republican base cares more about keeping immigrants out than the Democratic base cares about keeping immigrants in. You know, I think, I think for a lot of Republicans, keeping immigrants out is like a substantive policy preference. Um, and again, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, right? I mean, I, I, I do think there really is, a uh, uh, you know, plenty of Republicans who have a particular view about how it should work, but whatever. Um, whereas for Democrats, it's, you know, I think a lot of the kind of turn to being pro immigration has been you know not merely a substantive preference but also like a anti anti-immigration kind of response to to the republicans and i think the republican preference is just stronger um and so from a political perspective i do think that biden and the democrats understand this and and they are kind of taking advantage of trump's or or they or they're kind of playing defense on their sort of right right flank you know and, and i also think that to be honest i think that the um you know, what happened, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I think it was like about a year ago when when you had uh, DeSantis with those, you know, re- with that ridiculous stunt of flying people to to Martha's Vineyard, which again, right, was disgusting and possibly illegal, um, though I think that's still playing out. Um, I, I did think made, made a point that I think liberals have to reflect upon, which is that when people at the border talk about a border crisis, they're not making that up. Like it is legitimately difficult to incorporate thousands and thousands of migrants and asylum seekers. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it is hard. And I do think there is real blind spot on the part of um, a lot of Democrats and a lot of progressives who in theory are for this. But, you know, when they are actually presented with the reality of what it means to help people in need. Um, and not just on Martha's Vineyard, which was always not equipped for this, but New York City, which like has a lot of money and could deal with it if it wanted to, they freak out just as much. You know, I, I remember... Um, when I moved to my neighborhood in, in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, which is like a wonderful progressive neighborhood, right? It's exactly what you think. And I remember walking around and seeing all these lawn signs. And there were a lot of lawns with signs where, you know, on, on the, like one lawn sign was, um, uh, you know, here we believe that all people are legal. And then right next to it was no upzoning, <laughs> save our neighborhood. And like, it made my, I, I, I'm not an angry person by nature. <laughs> But things like that drive me crazy. And I do think there's a lot of, to be honest, just hypocrisy among, you know, right-thinking progressives and Democrats who are just not taking seriously what it means, right, to accept asylees, not just people who, you know, can show, let's say, a credible threat of, you know, I'm part of a, a, you know, racial group that is currently experiencing genocide in my country, and therefore I'm going to come in, right, but, you know... Uh, my country, because of economic and climate dislocation, is overrun by gangs, it has no economic opportunities, and I'm claiming a silo on that basis, right? Because that's increasingly what we're going to see. And that's a large number of people. And frankly, neither side has filled has covered itself in glory. Right now, I think the Republicans are often just nasty and xenophobic about it, um, but the Democrats are often, I think, unserious about the nature of of the issue, um, and I think that's something that the Biden administration is realizing, um, especially going into an election season, um, that that uh, it needs to take very seriously.
1: Alan, are you suggesting that people contradict themselves sometimes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but not like the fun Walt Whitman way, you
1: know? <laughs> exactly. Very well then. Um, on the politics, I think that's right. I think this signifies that Biden is much more concerned about his critics to the right than to the left. I think this completely lays it bare. Um, And I think to the the point that immigration is fractally complex, immigration law and immigration, I think, as a social force, what I worry about this debate is that Title 42 completely swallows the entire immigration debate. It becomes a stand-in for immigration as a whole, Asylum seekers are a significant number of of uh, migration um, to the United States, but um, you know not the entire population of people seeking to enter the United States. So, like many, I think it just it becomes distilled to this one issue <clears throat> while ignoring other aspects. Uh, and I think um, what gets lost in this debate is is the definitions here. I think I have this is just an inkling, but I, but it seems like. Uh, there's been a a sort of mass forgetting of what asylum is and what it's for, you know, it's, it's maybe illegal, but it's permitted traditionally for people to enter first to seek asylum and wait here while they're being processed. That's how it's been since world war II. Uh, and that seems to have been lost in the debate. Whereas it's, it seems like a binary you enter illegally and that's it versus not. And so I think, um, that's that's what I've been worried about with, with the Title 42 news.
2: Yeah, I feel like for me, the thing that's really struck me is that under the Trump administration, there was such an outpouring of anger, justifiably, over the family separation policy. And I should say that um, Caitlin Dickerson at The Atlantic just won a Pulitzer for her incredible reporting. Um, On the family separation policy, which I would highly, highly recommend that everybody go read. But there is this weird sort of out of sight, out of mind quality to all of this where people were so angry about family separation, including, you know, the nice liberals who have no in this house, we believe no human is illegal also, please no development, and I will say I have also seen those signs in washington d c which is a city of you know that has a huge immigrant population, many of whom like are asylumes
0: i'm looking I'm looking at you, Tenley town. oh, <laughs> build more yes. apartment buildings Oh
2: yes, um, yeah, please God don't develop this like barren patch of fenced off land, but um, in all seriousness. When the administration moved from the family separ from the policy that had resulted in family separations to a different set of policies, including what was called "remain in Mexico," um, essentially meaning that um, asylum seekers were required to remain in Mexico, rather than being allowed to wait in the United States uh, while their claims are processed, um, and the safe third country program, which essentially limited the ability to seek asylum in the United States if you'd traveled through a nominally safe third country, which I should say, my understanding is that the new rule essentially takes that and applies it. The, the countries listed as safe third countries are not just a handful of countries in the um, the Northern Triangle of Central America, but like most countries on planet Earth, that that resulted and has resulted, still has resulted in incredibly awful conditions on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexican border, where people are waiting in unbelievably squalid conditions. There's essentially refugee camps that are not recognized as such. Often there's no running water. Uh, Gang violence is awful because gangs know that they can extort and kidnap these people with very little um, blowback, you're stuck seeking, uh, appointments, uh, with this incredibly buggy app that's called CBP one, um, which is like, imagine the worst app that you've ever used in your entire life, except it's in a language that you may not speak. And it determines whether or not you will be able to <laughs> seek asylum from, you know, and you're in fear of your life. Um, and those conditions are horrible, I don't know how we rank, you know, badness in terms of family separation versus that. But like, if you were upset by family separations, you should be equally upset by this. And U.S. Americans just don't seem to care because it's on the other side of the border. Like, that's the only line I can draw that makes sense as the distinction. If you care about people being separated from their children, like people are being separated from their children in Mexico in these camps right now because they're being kidnapped And yet it seems like what the Trump administration figured out is that if you just shove it to the other side of the border, Americans do not get as angry about it. And I worry that the Biden administration has kind of picked up on that and is using it as a political tool as well in a way that I find really troubling
0: so yeah, so this is, this is interesting i I don't know how to feel about this last point you just made that if you if you were offended by the family separation policy, you should be equally offended by what's happening at the border. It strikes me that this, there's a little bit of a trolley problem almost aspect to this um where you know family separation is we brought people into the United States and then we in the United States separated families from children, right which I remember being offended about when i read about it in the Trump administration. And, and then I don't know, forgot about it. And, and then uh, now when I was, you know, researching for this episode, now I have a toddler and I was researching it. And like, I, it's, it's, I, I can't even imagine, right. It's it's like you know, have, being a, being a parent now, right? I can't even imagine that anyone ever thought this was like short of a, like a profound human rights violation. And, and I, I, I do want to just though be cognizant of the fact that like, look, I I mean, we do routinely make distinctions about things that happen in the united states versus things that happen outside the united states i mean you know maybe we shouldn't right and you know peter singer will come and remind us that people are people and utilitarianism should be global and then we can you know there's that wonderful uh, uh line from the from the west wing uh, where bartlett says something like uh, you know i don't know why an american is worth more than someone in some foreign country but you know they are uh, you know i i i do think that that i think what you're what you're getting at though is that the immigration system that we have in the United States, and frankly, the immigration system that literally every single country has, right? This is not a US only problem, does make a distinction ultimately between, you know, people inside and people outside. And and this is why I think ultimately it kind of gets back to this question of what is asylum for, right? And how broad should we make it? Now, again, right, I, I think it should be super broad, but I, I'm in a minority in, in this country on on that. And given, you know, given people's views about this, and and that um, a lot of folks that are claiming asylum are claiming it for very understandable reasons, but also not, you know, imminent violence at home. I I don't know how to square that circle, you know, given my what my policy preferences are, but also my commitment to like small democracy.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, speaking of human rights violations, one question I've had recently that I haven't seen much commentary on is um, whether or not the the policy constitutes a pushback in international law, which is prohibited under I think the Geneva Convention of 1951, where uh, you know if if a state knowingly. Uh, sends uh, an asylum seeker or refugee back to a state where their um, life is in danger that constitutes a human rights violation? And, and I, I think, is the answer just plainly yes? Uh, it is a pushback and that we don't care. I mean, the EU does it as well. That was, you know, something that I think doesn't even enter into the conversation, um, at least domestically.
2: Yeah, I think that's a huge concern. I don't, I agree. I don't see how this doesn't violate non refoulement especially because, We have seen so many stories of people who were very much put in that position under the existing safe third country regime. Um, I mean, I will say that, again, I think this is right. I did so much research, guys, Um, that the policy, the Trump administration policies that this is kind of echoing were eventually held up in court. Um, I'm not precisely sure about what the reasoning was, but I think that that opens a Big question about whether or not this is going to stand. Um, And then, I mean, you get into a huge question about how, like, again, like the administration was blocked from ending Title 42 by conservative judges. So maybe other judges will say that it can't implement this replacement policy. And then we just have like the battle of the district judges with the nationwide injunctions against the executive making immigration policy. And that's a whole other cattle of a fish I will say just to just to close out the conversation I mean Tyler you mentioned Europe which I think is also a really important point to enter here I, like to, to frame to frame sort of my concern a little more broadly you know, and the United States and Europe are, are to some extent committed to having you know a uh, free and open society for a certain amount of people now how you define who those people are is a very difficult question but my worry is that we've increasingly moved into a structure where, like that that promise is entirely circumscribed by whether you're in the country to begin with. And I think that that is a, that that tension, as you point out, Alan, has always existed, but it really does feel to me like in a lot of ways, it is a uh, resounding rejection of the sort of post-World War II model of how we think about human rights as international and the right to cross borders. And I think that that's kind of troubling.
1: Uh, As Alan mentioned at the top of the show over the weekend, uh, a gunman opened fire at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, which is about 25 miles north of Dallas, killing at least eight people and injuring at least seven others before dying at the hands of a police officer who was actually on the scene responding to an unrelated call. Uh, Three of the victims were under 12 years old. The oldest was 37. Um, I think one of the victims included a 20-year-old security guard who was working at the mall the uh, a suspect has been identified as 33-year-old Mauricio Garcia. Um, he allegedly used an AR-15 style assault rifle, um, like so many other mass shootings of recent years. The reporting has suggested that he has harbored uh, white supremacist uh, and/or neo-Nazi beliefs. But I think there's uh, because he was killed at the scene. There's uh, a lot more will come out um, in the coming weeks and months about you know his beliefs and who he was. Also, as Alan mentioned, this wasn't even the deadliest mass shooting on record this year. According to the Gun Violence Archive, which is cited in Washington Post, there have been 202 mass shootings so far this year, and the number of mass shootings has increased in recent years. So in in 2020, 2021, and 2022 have been much deadlier than years before, with 610, 690, and 647 mass shootings, respectively. More data from the USA Today and AP have counted 2,880 victims who have lost their lives in 553 mass killings since 2006, just to give a sense of the scale. I think one thing that captures the national sentiment often, um, not the entire national sentiment, is uh, this sort of refrain that uh, The Onion actually posts every time this happens. The headline being, quote, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. Uh, And then I looked uh, up because, you know, I, I think people may may recognize this headline. They've The Onion has actually used this article 34 times, in each in response to mass shooting in the U.S., to give a sense of how much this just keeps repeating itself as tragedy and now increasingly as farce, uh, as Alan so aptly put it. So I think uh, one thing I want to get into, especially with with Alan and Quinta, uh, both of you, is... I think we often hear uh, debate over repealing the Second Amendment as you know the biggest roadblock to the gun control debate. Is this viable? Is this a red herring? Is this a dead end? Is this a productive debate for gun control ad- advocates? So, so uh,
0: you know, j- just as The Onion has published this story 34 times, um, rational security has done this segment, right? We have done these 15 minutes before, and we'll keep doing them because this is bad and we shouldn't forget about it. But there's a kind of Sisyphean quality to it because it's always just the same set of arguments over and over again, um, which, again, are still worth talking about. You know, the last time we talked about this, I think I was in the role of arguing that repeal of the Second Amendment has to be much more important as part of this debate. And Scott was arguing against it, uh, not because I think he has any particular love of AR-15s, but because he thought it was a distraction uh, that would get in the way of, you know, doing things that could on the margins in the short term help. You know, I, I don't know how much my thinking, frankly, has has evolved since then. I I I, I take everything that you know, Second Amendment repeal skeptics, um, you know, anti anti Second Amendment folks, point out about how divisive that would be. But I also think that this has to, at some point, become a moral crusade in the United States for this to be a true change. Look, it's it's not the case that you cannot have a country that has gun ownership and low rates of gun crime. There are countries like that 100% exist, right? Um, I think Israel is an example of that. I think the best example of that is Switzerland, where I believe every adult male Swiss person like has to have a rifle um, because they have this very uh, intense, um, yeah, please someone Google this to make sure I didn't just totally make that up. But I don't think I made that up um, because they have this sort of long tradition of of self-defense and citizen stuff like that. But they just have a very different culture. Right, and so like people it's because they
1: all have to go protect the pope.
0: <laughs> yeah, protect the pope and and like um, make make holes in cheese and stuff like that. No, but they don't have a lot of gun violence. The problem is that like that's not very helpful for the United States. Like we just have a very different culture. Um, we have a relatively weaker central government. We have a much more violent culture, right? And we can talk about why that is. Um, but to me, it seems very unlikely that we can lower substantially the amount of gun violence without really restricting the Second Amendment. Now, part of this is because under the expansive recent Supreme Court interpretations of the Second Amendment, most recently Bruin, things like AR-15s are probably covered by the Second Amendment, right? The Supreme Court has made very clear that the point of the Second Amendment Look, we can debate that, but I think the Supreme Court has made very clear- well, I was point-
2: Paul, Paul Clement uh, just filed, our boy Paul Clement just filed a brief at the Supreme Court arguing, indeed, that IR-15s are covered. So look,
0: thanks, look, Paul. Look, if, if you think, right, if you think that the point of the Second Amendment was to protect the rights of individuals basically against the state, and it was an individual right, then I think there is a fairly- you know, intuitive argument that AR-15s, which are obviously more powerful than handguns, but are also not like shoulder-mounted nuclear weapons, are part of, you know, what that right consists of. Um, and that restrictions of that will be possible, but quite hard to do. The, the The problem, of course, with that is that even if you were to get rid of the AR-15s, the vast majority of gun crime is not AR-15s, right? It's handguns. Um, and A lot of that is also suicides and stuff like that. So to really like solve the gun violence problem in the United States uh, would require getting rid of handguns. And I think no one thinks that that is possible to do under any interpretation of the Second Amendment that decouples it from the need to have a well, you know, to have a well-regulated militia, right? And so to me, it seems that what the United States needs if it wants to actually solve this problem is turn against guns. And that requires a multi-generational campaign, right? And those are hard to do, but they're possible to do, right? And, you know, different sides of the American political spectrum have done that in American history, right? The civil rights campaign from the left, the anti-Roe campaign from the right, right? Which, you know, whatever you think about the merits has been a very effective multi-generational moral crusade that has added real legal change. And you need, but for that, you need a focal point, Right? And the focal point of more background checks, like this is, it's it's just lame. Whereas, whereas saying, look, the Second Amendment just was a mistake, uh, and is not appropriate, um, is I think a stronger focal point. Now, whether you actually need to repeal the Second Amendment or just have such overwhelming public turning against it that the Supreme Court at some point does it for you, right? is a, is an interesting question. Um, in you know, in, in fact, often in American history, things that were almost amendments, but failed ended up being implemented essentially in the Supreme Court. It's, you know, and actually a famous example of this is the equal rights amendment, which was not enacted, but contemporaneously to its being pushed through the States. Um, the Supreme court actually ended up, um, modifying the equal protection, uh, doctrine to include sex, um, as a protected category, not maybe quite to the same level that the ERA folks would have wanted. But like, they, they, they actually got a lot of that into the law that way. Um, so there's some tactical questions there. But look, this is why I've always thought that if what you're concerned about is like the problem of gun violence in this country, uh, then I don't know, you just you have to, you have to commit to the bit.
2: First on the legal aspect, and then I want to talk about the sort of cultural aspect, because I think that they're related but distinct in some ways. So I very much fail you, Alan, on the Second Amendment repeal point. I will say I think it's also worth flagging that the I believe the majority of gun deaths in the United States are not murders but suicides. I think that that's important to to keep in mind as well. But definitely, yeah, we're focusing this conversation on on mass shootings. I, I worry that going straight to Second Amendment repeal is kind of seeding the turf in a way. And let me explain what I mean by that. So my understanding from people who study these things, and I'm focusing here on the work of Uh, Jake Charles, um, who studies uh, firearms law at Pepperdine, who has made the argument that, you know, Bruin does not wipe out the possibility of gun regulation, and neither did Heller. Obviously, they both restrict significantly uh, what gun regulation is possible, but that we have seen a real uptick in blue states of gun regulations post-Bruin as kind of a reaction to the Supreme Court's decision there. So, so one thing is that I, I do worry a bit that you, you end up in this position of, if you say, focus on the second amendment, that you kind of give legislators on both the federal and state level a pass. Um, and saying like, oh, well, we can't do anything because of the Second Amendment. Whereas you could absolutely, I mean, you could underbrew an underheller. There are regulations that you could put in place. They wouldn't do everything, but they could do something. And that makes a difference when we're talking about lives. And then also, I mean, look, if you really wanted to go hard, you could say like, pass the law and dare the Supreme Court to overturn it, right? I. But I also think that, you know, this turn in second amendment understandings of providing a individualized right to firearms is new and so i worry that that if you say you know the only way is to overturn the second amendment that you're kind of seeding the ground to the majority in heller whereas in a pre heller world there wasn't an individualized right to firearms because of the well ordered militia provision in the in the second amendment so I don't know. I, I think it's, it's kind of a strategic question, but I do. That's something I've been thinking about. And then, so Alan, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. But before, you, before I g- allow you to get a word in, let me say one other thing, which is that I was looking after this shooting in Texas at statistics about mass shootings in the United States over time. It's a little difficult to get that data because what constitutes a mass shooting is not really well-defined. But there has, by I think any measure, been a pretty sharp uptick in recent years. And what struck me is two things. First, there's an uptick after Heller in 2008. Second, gun violence, mass shootings have continued to climb after 2012, which was the Newtown shooting. And I remember in 2012, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, I went to college like 30 minutes away from Newtown, I remember when the buses came back early that day carrying the kids back from school, that there was a refrain of kind of, you know, once Americans decided that it was acceptable for little kids to be massacred, the gun violence debate was over. I actually don't think that's true. And the reason is that mass shootings have continued to climb after Newtown. And I think if you understand this as Uh, Not, you know, the way that things have always been since time immemorial, but like a recent historical development within the last 30 years that has continued to get worse since Newtown, which is often seen as a kind of inflection point of despair. Um, that that actually may open a possibility for thinking like, if things continue to get worse, if things have not always been this way, maybe there is a point at which people really do start to push back kind of along the way that you're suggesting, Alan. And one hint I think that we see of that is so the Texas, uh, one chamber of the Texas state legislature did pass legislation raising age limits on access to certain kinds of firearms after the, the mall shooting. It seems like that is totally dead in the water, but it's still a Interesting sign. And I also have noted that the way that the press covers these shootings seems different. And what I mean by that is that after Newtown, there was not coverage of what that gun, which I believe was an AR-15, did to the bodies of those kids for a good reason. It's horrifying. In recent years, the Washington Post had a huge, long set of articles about the AR-15. And one of the things that it had was essentially a diagram of what the AR-15 does to a body. One of the things that we saw in the wake of the Texas shooting was, unfortunately, video and images of the shooting being posted on Twitter, which they didn't take down, which is horrible. But you also saw people talking about, again, how people's bodies were just ruined by this weapon. And I do think that if there's more sort of public attention on the particular harms done by these kinds of weapons, that that may increase public understanding of what a weapon of war they are and that perhaps they shouldn't be allowed in communities. So I've been talking for a while. I'm I'm curious for both of your thoughts.
0: Well, I mean, I'll just say something quickly, which is, look, I I don't, I always wear these conversations just end up in this like endless, you know, Ouroboros circle, right? Look, all, all I will say is, is that um you know this conversation i think is a good example of the tensions between reformism and abolition um and and you know reflecting on my own views here i am almost always a reformist right just const- like just kind of personality wise i am always a Yeah this is very out
2: of character for you. Yeah it's you.
0: super it's super out of character for me right and Comrade Allen yeah, no, honestly, right? You know, I mean... Sign what, the
2: report her on statement.
0: <laughs> you, you know, so, you know, for example, you know, you know, when we talk about police abolition, I'm I'm always very, very skeptical, right? Because I'm sort of think that reformism is the way to go and abolition is, you know, doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. Um, and this is like the one issue where I am just like, a, a you know, abolitionist all the way. And, and you know, it, it, is, it is interesting to reflect on like, what are those issues that make you just go, nope, I'm done. And I think it's one of these issues where, you know, I'm just... I'm just. I'm done. I'm you know I, to, to to quote from a different context the the Supreme Court's death penalty jurisprudence. You know, I'm done tinkering with the machinery of death on this. Um, but that's not to say that I have a particularly good argument for for why this will be more effective uh, over over the the long run.
1: Yeah, I, I agree that this endless circular debate can be exhausting. Um, and there and I, I agree, Quinta, there are some hopeful signs that there is perhaps an opening for change uh that I agree the media coverage has a different tenor a different different style that is productive I think to toward gun control one thing that worries me though is that I think at, on at the same time there has been a hardening of the Republican position and the Republican response to where you know so far our discussion rightfully has been focused on it's the gun stupid you know it's this is, this is the reason and that, you know, gun control is, is the answer. We can argue about the, the tactics, the margins of it, you know, whether abolition or banning, banning assault rifles or background checks, et cetera. But that is, you know, focused on reducing the supply of guns and access to guns. Republicans and, and you know, many people on the right just completely sidestep that entirely. Um, Jamel Bowie had a, a, a good column in the New York Times on May 9th, I believe, where he takes each of the common Republican talking points about this issue, the first being mental illness, um, which is a common refrain every time this comes up. uh, And the second is the sort of hardening of soft targets, uh, which I'll get into in a second. But he quickly dispatches with the mental illness argument. He cites uh, a number of studies and reports, one of which came from the FBI, saying that this is misleading uh, at best. So he really focuses his column on this idea, which uh, he cites Megyn Kelly as bringing up of this sort of hardening of soft targets. So you see this in the, the debate with, you know, door access, uh, you know, arming security guards in schools, that kind of thing. And, and Bowie really lays out what that vision of America would look like. Uh, it's, it's, Amer- it's an America of, of endless airport style security lines of he says fear and alienation. So that worries me that, that, the right does seem to have, or Republicans at least, have, seem to have hardened their position even further, and that they just completely sidestep any real discussion of, of gun control entirely.
0: I mean, what's what's ironic, of course, is that, you know, if, if the Republicans wanted to say, uh, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, and that's why we have to focus on the white supremacist, neo-Nazi, far-right threat in this country, um, you know, that that, that might be an, an okay outcome. But you're right, they they don't focus on that. They focus on sort of weird fantasies of uh, the only way to, what is it, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to to, with a good guy with a gun, I think is the, is the, is the refrain.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's also worth worth pointing out that I think a number of the recent gun violence incidents, like one of the most predictive uh, qualities for whether someone is going to use a, a weapon for murder is whether they've engaged in domestic violence, given that the vast, vast majority of these shooters are male. And we have seen how some courts have looked at Bruin and said, well, there's not, you know, uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but, you know, th- there's there's not a long historical tradition of taking away arms from domestic abusers in this country because when this history was happening, women didn't have any rights. Um, and so, again, I'm not saying that every court would necessarily use the Bruin decision to to strike down those laws, but I know it has happened in at least some places, which is another limitation on what we can do.
0: Well, moving from two incredibly difficult and depressing topics to one that is maybe a little bit more fun and frivolous. I mean, clearly depressing for some. Let's talk about the end of BuzzFeed News. Um, so uh, on, on April 20th, BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti announced that as part of kind of company wide layoffs uh, across BuzzFeed, uh, BuzzFeed News would be shutting down and that BuzzFeed would instead be focusing its news efforts around H- the Huffington Post or HuffPost, as it's now called, and that it acquired in 2020. Uh, BuzzFeed News published its last piece of content last Friday, and so it is no more. Uh, it started in December 2011 with uh, Ben Smith, who had previously been a Politico, uh, coming on as its editor in chief. He held that position for nine years until he left uh, to go to the New York Times to be a media columnist in 2020. Um, I, I think he's he's currently running a kind of a new internet news startup. I think it's called Semaphore, uh, which you know I think is trying to do the BuzzFeed news model, but more sustainably. And you know we'll see how that how that works. Um, So I, I think it's fair to say that BuzzFeed News has had kind of an up and down, you know, history within journalism. You know, it's definitely had some notable successes. So in 2017, for example, it covered how Breitbart News had solicited story ideas from white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Uh, the same year, it broke the story of sexual misconduct allegations against actor uh, Kevin Spacey, um, who used to be my favorite actor and is now dead to me. And most notably, uh, it did really fantastic reporting Um uh, sort of interesting combination of some on, on the ground, but also from, from space satellite, really innovative reporting about um, the, the Chinese repression of the Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang, uh, a investigation for which it won a, a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting in 2021. Right? A pretty, pretty big deal award in the journalism industry. But of course, it also had its fair share of controversies. So, you know, at the top, I already mentioned the the Steele dossier. um, But BuzzFeed News also reported that Trump had directed uh, his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress about how Trump Tower in Moscow was built. It's something that the Mueller report ended up disputing. And just more generally, I think there was always a tension between the serious reporting that BuzzFeed News wanted to do, and again, often did, right? It like won a Pulitzer and on the other hand, the more clickbaity, traffic based social media, tra- you know, advertising obsessed business model of its parent company, BuzzFeed. So, um, you know, Quinta, let me, let me, you know, as, as, as the, the uh, most journalism adjacent person uh, here, let me ask you, why, why did BuzzFeed news shut down? Root to Tyler. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Tyler and I are going to gang up on you. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they shut down because they got a ton of VC funding and they burned through it without figuring out a sustainable business model, which unfortunately is a very familiar story. Um, We also saw that uh, Vice is declaring bankruptcy. Um, I think the... (sighs) The spate of sort of small ish media companies that got VC funding and then shuttered over the last what like I don't know Tyler five ten years it just like it's like dominoes just like one one after the other, um, and I think BuzzFeed I I think it's fair to say I don't Tyler tell me if you think I'm wrong it's kind of the highest profile casualty
1: here I think certainly from the 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 Twitter fallout and the yes. the, the oral histories and the heartfelt you know responses it seems like the biggest um, splash.
2: Yeah. And especially, you know, given that they did have that Pulitzer and they did really incredible, groundbreaking reporting. I think it, man, it's it's just, it's so sad. I think it's sad because it suggests, it's kind of the end of an era in a way, like end of an era for cheap money flowing into news startups. And a, a kind of willingness to throw anything at the wall and, and see what sticks. Um, and I worry that it's a sign that, you know, not that things have been super great um, in the media business in the last 10 years or so, but that it's a sign that things are going to get even leaner for reporting, um, especially ironically, given that uh, the New York Times just announced, a, I think, $100 million deal, um, if not more, with with Google um, so it, it's kind of a situation where, you know, there's one, there are a few lifeboats that are kind of the big legacy media operations and everyone, everything else is, is just falling apart. And I really worry that what this means is, you know, nobody has figured out how to make news profitable and journalism profitable uh, in the sort of post Craigslist era where advertising is not really a sustainable business model, at least at scale. Um, and we can we can talk about different models that might be possible. Um, but that, that is, it's it's not, you know, it's sad because people lost their jobs. It's sad because they did great reporting. But I think it, you know, the reason that we wanted to talk about it here is partially that I think it is really worrying in terms of what it says about, you know, the media environment contributing to broader questions about the health of American democracy right now you know, we need sunlight, we need reporting, we need smart people weighing in on these issues and telling people what's going on in the world. Um, And if you create a uh, situation where it's kind of the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, the New Yorker, and that's it, uh, you're not only really limiting where people can get their news, but you're also limiting the ability of young people to come into this business and figure out what's interesting and what they want to write about. And in a time when Americans have so little trust in the press, and we've seen how the decimation of local news has really demonstrably harmed local communities and allowed uh, officials to get away with some really heinous stuff, it just strikes me as a, a bad sign for where things are going.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll continue to raise the alarm bells just before Alan tells me that I'm being alarmist. But I did get the sense that there's this idea that, you know, if BuzzFeed News couldn't make it, who could? They were nationally focused. They uh, they broke big stories, <laughs> some, of, some of which were controversial or uh, wrong, um, but many of which were, you know, incredibly well reported, creatively reported, you know, using cutting edge techniques for which they were Awarded the Pulitzer just two years ago, I might add, uh, which I think is less, uh, probably less, a, a sign of a, a meteoric fall than just a, a masking of of the troubles that were, you know, just b- behind one layer. But it, yeah, again, it, you know, I think uh, as many people have rightfully pointed out, you know, what does this portend then for locally focused digital media outlets? For example, uh, uh, I think you know it it, it doesn't look good and i think i would encourage people to read uh ben smith's half postmortem half sort of um you know reflection in semaphore uh as to what he you know i think his his diagnosis of the problem he seemed to i think pin buzzfeed news's demise on sort of the the changing tenor and um, attitudes towards social media, especially Facebook, uh, into this, you know, much more toxic um, sludge fest as one of the biggest reasons. But I think I think one more thing I would say is that uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I went to a, a couple of journalism conferences, and, it, and it, there was another feeling that, you know, there are great reporters out there, there are time-honored investigative techniques. And there's a sense that journalists just want to, like, just let us do our job. And it's really the business model that's broken. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. There was, one of the conferences was on covering campaigns and every person up there was like, you know, we don't want to do horse race politics. We know that we should get out there, talk to voters, embed ourselves in, in towns, embed ourselves with campaigns. But you know, that takes a lot of money and resources and those money resources are drying up. I think as Ben Smith put it in his uh, semaphore piece, you know, you can't expect a billionaire to swoop in and save every little newspaper out there. Let, let me take the opposite position here that like, maybe this isn't quite as sad as everyone's making it out to be.
0: Well, for, first, obviously, if you lost your job, that's sad. Like, no, no, you know, no, no, no jokes about that. No, 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 that's important, right? These are like real people who don't have jobs and that's really hard and stressful. But I just want to zoom out and be like, is this really such a tragedy from the perspective of like the broader journalist ecosystem and democracy? And, you know, look, I, I made that crack about how, uh, Quinta is the most journalism adjacent. I just do that to troll Quinta. Like, obviously, I think you two, Quinta and Tyler, are like journalists, right? And I am not. I am a like law professor who gets to hang out at law fair. And so I'm sort of less, I think, invested in the journalism side, perhaps. But I, I guess I don't necessarily see what was so great about BuzzFeed News and about sort of the, kind, again, the kind of ecosystem of sites like that, right? Gawker and Vice right? Who who like did some great reporting and did some like terrible reporting? I mean, I, I, again, maybe this is because I'm, I'm not a journalist and therefore sort of don't have those priors. But like when Peter Thiel funded Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker, like, I, I don't know, I didn't feel that bad. Like that was a crappy thing they did. They shouldn't have done it. Right. And I'm just not convinced that the model of clickbait, traffic obsessed, I think Tyler, you mentioned sludge fest. That's a nice word. Um, was ever particularly good. And again, sure, it did manage to fund some decent reporting, right? And you know, the BuzzFeed earned that Pulitzer. Um, but the question is, what were the costs of that? And would we have had that reporting, you know, no matter what from some different outlet with some different business model? And so I'm just not convinced that at net, like th- these, these entities did all that much good, you know, given the harm that they did to the media ecosystem. Now, Quinta, you raised the point that one reason this is disappointing is because it shows how difficult it is to be a sustainable journalistic outlet today. And that's particularly bad at the local level, where we've had a just total gutting of of local news. And that's really bad for, again, small seed democracy. And I think that's true. But like BuzzFeed wasn't doing reporting in Albany about like the New York state legislature, right? They were, they were all chasing the same national stories. And for that, I just like, I don't know. I think like the New York times, the Washington post and the wall street journal are like probably reasonably enough. And so, you know, if you want the local business model, the local news business model, like that's, we should have that, but I don't think Buzzfeed was ever going to to do that also. and, And again, here, maybe again, I'm, I'm just biased because of lawfare, but I don't know, like, Lawfare is pretty good, right? I mean, we, we, we talk about how there are no business models for this, but like take Lawfare, for example, right? We're a very lean organization. We don't cost that much. D- donors who are listening, ri- rich people who are listening, you can have a big impact if you like to send us money, right? Um, I think we punch way, way above our weight. And we do it through a kind of combination of support from you know, Brookings and foundations. And you know, we run ads on this podcast, and so we make some money that way. But I, I'm just, again, they're not convinced that you can't have a good journalistic ecosystem that that does a lot of what journalism needs to do, which is add value to the to democratic discourse in a way that also does not require this like traffic obsessed clickbait nonsense. So I don't know, I'm, I'm just maybe less, maybe less bummed out than, than you are all, but I don't know, tell me why I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, I will say I think the Gawker situation is a super fascinating one to look back on um, because this is like a completely different discussion. I think Gawker looks way less sympathetic as a hero, but I also think in retrospect, but I also think that Peter Thiel looks way worse as a villain because that model of kind of just taking just like an unbelievable pile of money and destroying a news organization is a really concerning model for what's to come given the current state of things. So let's table that. <laughs> we can come back to that another time um, and have a great gawker debate. I mean, yeah, I think that a couple things. One is that like, I think Busby did do some reporting that nobody else was doing and they were able to do that because they had buckets and buckets of AC money. And so I do think that that's worth flagging. Some of that was silly. Some of it was You know, like real shoe leather reporting that was serious and that legitimately nobody else was doing. The other thing is, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the postmortems, including one that I think uh, Max Tani wrote in Semaphore, have kind of focused on, said like what other models are sustainable and one of the other models that I see coming up again and again is like, what if you had a small outlet that was a nonprofit or, you know, didn't you know, grew sustainably and didn't try to go out over its skis and did like a couple of things really well and didn't chase the news cycle. We should and, try that. Yeah, right? <laughs> and I think Tyler and I have been talking about this over Slack and both been like, hey! <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't want to curse us, never say never, right? But um, I do, I have found that trend very interesting. I mean, the problem, again, is like, how do you fund that? Nonprofit models are are one option. The other example that Max Tani pointed to in Semaphore was the site um, Talking Points Memo, which has been around for a minute, uh, founded by Josh Marshall, and that I think is primarily subscription-based, so that that's another model. Um, but yeah, I mean, it feels like we're kind of in this transition moment where it turns out that like VCs are not interested in funding journalism anymore because that's that's a bit of an overstatement but essentially because it turns out it's not profitable and so we have to start thinking really seriously about what profitability might actually come from and or how to make a non model more widely sustainable because the number of nonprofit newsrooms while growing is still relatively
1: small. I don't know Tyler what do you think? Well, first, I want to amend what I said earlier, I think, when I said, you know, billionaires can't fund every newspaper, um, but you can fund ours. <laughs> so I just want to make that clear. Yeah, I, I mean, there's been a lot of um, headlines about how this is, quote, the end of the digital media era. And if that means it's the end of, I think, to some of Alan's points, if, if, if the silver lining there is that this is the end of, you know, targeting your stories. Or, or sort of engineering them to to be the most viral uh in news feeds and that's a good thing you know i think uh that's where you know it led to faulty reporting and you know just inaccurate stories so that may be a good thing but i don't know i think that that end of an era discussion may be overblown i think people are still trying to go viral with their stories um that's you know still a goal but I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. You know, whether it's uh, not to keep coming back to this, to Ben Smith's semaphore story, but I I did think it a bit strange where he sort of he had this, you know, this is these are the lessons learned. This is what BuzzFeed did wrong. This is the new media environment we're in. So the answer is newsletters. (laughs) That doesn't seem like a very inspiring or innovative. It, It just that that can't be the answer. But, you know, maybe I'll, I'll eat crow in a couple of years and semaphore will, will come on top.
2: Yeah, I mean can I can I say one thing, Alan, before you jump in? Cause I know you're strongly pro-newsletter. I think that the newsletter build business model is actually a really interesting and troubling counterpoint because it was initially promoted by Substack as a like, you don't have to chase clicks and headlines. You can write what your subscribers want. But the problem is and that you don't writing- need editors. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, first off, you need editors. And second off, writing what your subscribers want is a trap in its own way, because if you you kind of end up creating the thing that they want. And I think, I really think that that risks creating the kind of echo chamber that a lot of people say they want to get out of.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that is, that is the strongest argument against the newsletter model. And just to be clear, like when people say newsletter, what they mean is subscription. Like there's nothing special about newsletter. Right. Uh, and, and I think we've made a mistake to, I, I think Substack, I, I, I think it's a mistake to sort of think that like what the future is, is like, has to do with Substack. It's, it's just about subscriptions. And I do, I do think, to you, you are right. That, that is the main, that is, that is the main drawback of subscriptions, right? Which you end up in the sort of epistemically closed universe between you and your subscribers, right? Whereas if you're doing a kind of broad advertising based model, your incentive is to be pretty sort of big tent, um, to attract as many advertisers as possible. At the same time, though, it does seem like subscriptions really are the future. Um, and they are a way to create High quality journalism. Now it may, it'll be a different kind of high quality journalism um, because again it'll be more targeted. But I think that's I think that's obviously the 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 path forward. Um, and so then the question is, I think not. You know, how do we fight against a subscription based model? But how do we build a subscription based model that is rich enough to support quality journalism and then deal with the epistemic closure dangers of that? So look, yeah, I mean, if your answer is more newsletters, that's kind of lame. But if you just, I think, translate that in your mind to like, look, subscription at the end of the day is is what's gonna what's gonna do it. I think the answer that's obviously correct, right? At least at least for the large um, uh, uh, for the large uh, sites, right? I mean, Lawfare doesn't need subscriptions because we can do to do it as a nonprofit model, and we're not that big, we're not that expensive. Um, But you know, New York Times, The Economist, The Journal Post, all those sorts of things need subscriptions, and like they're they're doing okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there, uh, but it wouldn't be rational security if we didn't leave you with some object lessons. So, Quinta, let's turn to you. I'm sure that your object lesson is, as it always is, really lighthearted and fun and uplifting.
2: I think Alan is making fun of me. <laughs>
0: Come on. Being 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 the host have to ha- has to have some prerogatives.
2: Yeah. Well, my object lesson is, as I mentioned before, Caitlin Dickerson's incredible reporting about family separation in the Atlantic, which I think when they initially printed it was a whole issue of the magazine. It's a hefty read. So you really need to like sit down with it. But like, boy, is it worth it? It's just incredible reporting. I mean, there's, there's a bit of like a high wire act. You just look at it and you're like, oh my God, how does she do that? It's, Unbelievably wrenching. It's also a really striking portrait of moral failure um, and moral compromise under the Trump administration and how people ended up taking actions that uh, they justified at the time, but in retrospect really look like they sold their soul. Um, so I would highly, highly recommend it. It's always, the Pulitzer's are always fun. Because you know you remember journalism that you had forgotten about and discover new things, and this I think is extremely uh, worthy of the the prize. So, congrats to Caitlin Dickerson. Highly recommend the piece.
0: Oh yeah, this was she. She just won the Pulitzer for this, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tyler, what do you got?
1: Yeah, so I'll keep in the tradition. Uh, sorry, rather uh, in the theme of, of media. I love you know as as you could probably tell, I love being a, an armchair uh, media critic. But um, my object lesson this week is a new online magazine called The Dial. I think it's in the great tradition of little magazines doing experimental stuff uh, in in a really um, fresh way. They call themselves uh, the world's little magazine, so they have an explicitly non U.S. focus. I think they only actually. Uh, commission or accept submissions from writers who are not based in the United States. So it's a nice, uh, I think, palate cleanser to um, the just myopic, uh, my, sometimes my media appetite can be um, a bit, you know, US focused, I think it's safe to say. The latest issue uh, is called, is the theme is shipwrecks. Um, and this actually might be a bit self promotional, but I interviewed one of the authors um, who has an essay in the latest issue coming out later this week on the Lawford podcast, so look out for that. But it's just a it's just a wonderful collection of interesting essays spanning you know legal topics to cultural topics. Uh, it was started by Madeline Schwartz and Linda Kinsler. Uh, Linda Kinsler, friend of the pod as well. Uh, so highly encourage you. It's the the URL is thedial.world.
0: All right, you guys are so highbrow. I I am as usual just suggesting another streaming television show because apparently I watch like way too much television though. Again, in my defense as the parent of a two year old, like that's all I got. That's all I got the juice for at the end of the day. It's just my wife and I sitting next to each other watching television. It's just really, really nice. Our kid is finally asleep. And so we can pet our dog who finally gets some attention after being neglected all day. Um, so, so what we're watching lately is uh the silo uh, or sorry, just called silo. It's the Apple, new Apple TV, sci-fi uh, Drama—it's unbelievably good. Uh, it's basically uh, you know set in the dystopian future where the Earth is poisoned, and the remaining uh, survivors live in this underground bunker. And it's 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 just it's amazing. It's based on this uh, sci-fi book called Wool, or there's like a whole series of them, uh, which I tried to read and loved the world building, but did not love the writing. So I am glad they turned into this into like prestige drama because the writing, just everything is fabulous about it. I the first episode is like I really think the best first sci-fi world building episode maybe since like Battlestar Galactica it's just it's shockingly good it really brings you in um, the the actors are amazing um, uh, you know Rebecca Ferguson is in it and uh, you know who doesn't love Rebecca Ferguson it's it's really good it's okay really I wish this was like a, a cool hot hip take but I think every single person is gonna be watching this show if not already so um, but if you haven't you should watch it it's really good
1: I was going to say, I'm not always so highbrow. I, uh, I, if you recall, last time I was on Rational Security, I, uh, I recommended Emily in Paris to everyone, which I, I still stand by. Oh,
0: I, I hope I made absolute mockery of you for that. I think I did. I'm, I will have to check the archives. Quinta, you're, um, you're, I'm giving you an assignment. I'm giving you homework. For next week, you got to bring some real lowbrow stuff. Like I, you need to bring that, some like, you need to bring some junk food for for object lessons. I've
2: been really busy and I haven't had time to enjoy junk food.
0: Oh so like God, I'm
2: I'm trying, man. That's
0: such a humble brag. Guys, I've just been so busy thinking that's not deep what thoughts. I meant. Like, haven't even been able to sit and rot my brain like you do.
2: <laughs> I okay, I my object lesson was something that I read like months ago.
0: <laughs> well, I've like, So I'm cheating. I, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a week. I'm giving you a week. Come prepared.
2: I'm trying to think of the trashiest thing that I've enjoyed. Quinta, I'll send you some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been enjoying blue sky, which is all just like straight up Ooh. shit posting and people posting pictures of their butts for some reason. I...
0: Excellent. Next week, your object lesson is your experience on blue sky done. Oh,
2: hell yeah. I'll talk about that. You guys are first in line when I get invite codes.
0: Fabulous. Well, uh, now, that you have a, now that you all have a preview to, to net next week's uh, episode, this brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forbearer, a production of Lawfare. And while you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of our other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L security. Be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Uh, Sign up to become a material supporter on Lawfare, even if you're not a billionaire. Uh, You can do that on patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music was performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Petya Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta, our special guest Tyler McBrien and our temporarily dethroned uh, host, Scott Anderson. I am Alan Rosenstein, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. This message comes from BOF sponsor,
2: eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it.